during the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and God's kingdom will stand forever. Welcome to the end. Financial headlines in 2020 don't make for inspirational reading. In fact, just recently, Pope Francis even suggested, in light of the economic times that we are in, that perhaps it's time for us to consider a universal basic wage. Why did he say this? Well, an article released by ABC News says that 580 million people, that's 8% of the world's total population, or half a billion people, could be pushed into poverty by the economic fallout called by coronavirus. The size of a poverty tsunami like this is just mind-boggling, and it's just the very tip of the iceberg. People are losing their jobs and businesses right now. Perhaps even you can relate to this. This is a huge deal, because in just seven weeks, 33 million people filed jobless claims in the United States alone. And based on modeling drawn upon from the 2009 global financial crisis and the 1997 Asian financial crisis and the Great Depression, analysts say that Australia can anticipate a surge in the rate of suicide of up to 50%. 50%. This is a huge mental crisis that we are facing. Is there a solution? Can we survive the coming storm? One thing's for sure. There is no security in the things of this world. Wall Street markets wake up to Wall Street nightmares. Overnight, your 401k can become 201c. Thanks to forces beyond your control and mine, overnight, superinflation can hit your superannuation and leave you nothing but super frustration. What happens when everything you have trusted in crumbles beneath your feet? What happens when the economy that you depend on crashes and falls? Where can we find security? Does God have a crash-proof plan to carry us through financial end times to the end of time? He does, and that's why we're here tonight. To a world where Bitcoin and buying looks bright, the Bible speaks of one who is brighter still. His name is Jesus. In fact, Jesus is called the pearl of great price. And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. He said this, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's beautiful. Now let's be clear right up. It's not wrong for us to have things. When what is wrong is when the things that we have have us. When things become the object of our life and when we live for things and work 60 to 70 hour weeks for things, those things become our gods. And sometimes God has to allow for our things to be taken away so that we can know what the true value in life is. And it is found in knowing him. It's nothing less and nothing else than just that. This is why Jesus says to us that there is a better place for us to invest in, heaven. It's not worth living and dying for material, temporary things. 
So I know here's the question we're all asking right now. How can we open a, a bank account in Heaven's Bank so that we can invest there? What does it mean to invest our riches in eternity? It means simply this. We say and we pray, Lord, I recognize that my anchor is in you. It's not in my things. Everything that I am and everything that I have, it is yours because you gave it to me. Tell me, Lord Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? Is Jesus calling you and I to sell everything that we own? No, he's not. But laying up treasure in heaven means that we build our lives not on something that can slip through our fingers like sand, but to build our lives on something that is secure. Just think about the recent devastating fires that we experienced in our own country here in Australia. Thousands of people lost their homes and everything that they owned just overnight. And if our lives are tied up in our things, then a loss like this could bring on a mental breakdown in our lives. But friends, when we give ourselves and everything that we have to Jesus, then things do not control us anymore. The Bible says in Matthew 16, verse 26, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Judas, the Bible tells us, he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And many people are doing the same with Jesus today. In fact, I read a story about how they catch monkeys in certain parts of Africa. Hunters will leave out sugar cubes. Monkeys come along, they eat them, and they get addicted. And then this is what the hunter does. He's very clever. He builds a wooden box, and he places some of those sugar cubes in the box, and he creates a hole in the side of the box just big enough for the monkey to get its hand in it. The monkey will come along. He will smell the sugar cubes. He will come to that box, put his hand in, grab the sugar cubes. And here's where the, the hunter has been very clever, because he only makes the hole big enough for the monkey's hand to get in, but not to get out unless they release the sugar cubes. The monkey will reach his hand in, hold on to those cubes, and stand there for hours until the hunter comes along and eventually captures his prey. When we hold on to the things of this world, we're as trapped as those monkeys are. Because Jesus says, we don't have to be like this. We don't have to put our confidence in materialism, in stuff, in things. Jesus is calling us to something higher. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We should be praying, Lord, teach me that this life is short and help me to make decisions in light of the fact that we are facing eternity. How long is eternity? I like the way a teacher explained it to a little boy. He said, imagine that a seagull comes in and he comes and he takes a drop of water from the ocean in his beak and then he flies off away. Imagine that that seagull comes back once every thousand years and takes one drop in its, in its beak, I think that's what you call it, and flies away. By the time the ocean runs dry, after he repeats this process, that is just one second of eternity. Friends, 
The point is illustrated. Eternity is a long time. And in this life, in just one day, we can lose everything that we own and our own lives can end. That's why the Bible is telling us today that the best investment you can make is in Jesus. Investing in eternity is not just worth it, but it is wise. The Bible predicts that a coming financial crisis will hit this world before the end comes. There are two Bible passages that I'd like to share with you on this. There's a coming crisis. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted. What does that mean? It means they will devalue. And your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now this next part is a prophecy. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Friends, the Bible is very clear that there is a time coming when money will rapidly devalue. It's just a matter of time before this hits. And Revelation tells us how quickly this will all happen also. Revelation 18, verse 10, and I'll skip through a little bit to verse 17. The Bible says, For in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her. Why? For no one buys their merchandise anymore. And verse 17, for in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Everyone who puts their security in money will collapse and fall apart when the world's economies collapse if they haven't followed God's financial counsel. Because wealth, the wealth that we have in this world, it is fleeting. So what is God's financial solution? What is his answer to our financial problems that can make us bankrupt proof in these times? Well, when we look at the Bible, we realize something wonderful, that this world isn't ours, it is God's. In fact, Genesis 2 verse 8 says this, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. God planted the garden and man was placed in the garden. Man wasn't given the garden to own. He was placed in the garden to manage it. And so we see here this principle. We are the managers and God is the owner. Another word for this is stewardship. It's where you manage someone else's property for them. And this is a fundamental principle we need to embrace if we are going to survive in the coming crisis. And it is this, you ready? Nothing I have is mine. Everything I have is God's. As Adam and Eve walked through the Garden of Eden, they recognized that every tree and every flower and every animal and every plant that they saw, God had created it and everything was God's. In fact, notice in Genesis 1 verse 28 what God did. The Bible says God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth, but they weren't the owners of it. God was still the owner. And this is echoed again in Psalm 50. Psalm 50 verse 10 says, God says, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. In fact, I love verse 12. 
God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all its fullness. And so to reveal to Adam and Eve that he is the creator, God placed a tree in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, this is what God said to them. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. In other words, I'm giving you all of these. But verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The tree that God placed in the garden, it represented the reality that God owned the earth. And when Eve yielded to Satan's temptation and she took what was God's, she was taking what was God's and what was his alone. And in her action, God's ownership was ignored. Adam and Eve took what God had asked them to never take. And friends, when you and I race through our lives simply trying to amass wealth, we are saying to God, you didn't give me this opportunity, it's mine. I made this opportunity happen. So here's the question. Is there a tree for us today? Is there a way where we today can acknowledge God's ownership over everything in the world as a test of faith that God has given to us? Just like the tree. Is there a tree for us today? Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25 says this, God, who made the world and everything in it, gives to all life, breath, and all things. God made the world. And Deuteronomy 8, verse 18 says this, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. God's financial plan is that we remember him as the creator of heaven and earth and that he is the one who gives us the power to get wealth. I love this because all the talents and abilities that we have to earn a living, they come from God. All the health and strength we have that to earn a living, it comes from God as well. He gives us the opportunities. He gives us the open doors. He gives us every breath that we take. It's all a reminder of God's goodness and grace to us. In fact, Haggai 2 verse 8 says, God says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. And so the first step to protecting ourselves against the coming crisis is for us to get on our knees and to pray before God and say, Lord, I thank you for the house and the home that I live in. I thank you for the vehicle that I drive, but I know they're not mine. They are yours. And every dollar that I save and spend, it's yours. Thank you for giving me a chance to use them for your glory. That's what we should be praying. And there is so much peace when we consecrate everything that we have and are to God. You should try it. So how did God's people acknowledge God's ownership of all in the Bible? It's interesting. As you read the Bible, every faithful Bible hero, both in the Old and in the New Testament church, they all acknowledged God's sovereignty in an, and ownership in a very specific way. Notice Genesis 14, verses 19 and 20 with me. The Bible says, And he blessed him and said, "Be Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And verse 20, And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Abraham 
gave a tithe of all in this passage to Melchizedek, who was the priest of God. Why? Because Abraham knew. Abram, that's what his name was at that time. He knew that God was the owner of it all. And so here in this story, in this passage of scripture, we find that tithe became a visible symbol of the reality that everything I have isn't mine. And everything that we have is God. And so we set a portion aside, and that is what the Bible calls tithe. This was how he was able to acknowledge God's goodness to him. In returning his tithe to God, he was saying, Lord, all the health and all the wealth that I have, it comes from you. And Jacob, his grandson, he did the same. He followed God and was blessed. And the Bible says in Genesis 28, verse 22, And of all that you give me, Jacob says, I will surely give a tenth to you. As a visible sign of his relationship with God, Jacob gave a tithe. And a tithe means a tenth. So one, so a tithe is a tenth. And I like this because math is not really my thing. I am so grateful that God didn't say that a seventh or a twelfth or a fifteenth was how we could recognize his ownership of all because anyone can figure out a tenth. In the Old and the New Testaments, men and women set aside a tenth of all their increase for God to acknowledge that 100% of everything they had was God's. It's time you and I began to trust in the Lord like they did. I like the way one Baptist preacher put it. His name's Adrian Rogers. He said, a faith that hasn't reached your purse or wallet probably hasn't reached your heart. God says, if you want to be on heaven's financial plan, give your resources to me by setting aside a tithe for the advancement of the gospel in the world. And if you ever have any questions about God, you ought to test God on this. You'll always be able to do more with the nine-tenths that you have as you give God your tenth as your, and having God as your economic partner than you will by having all ten-tenths to yourself. In fact, notice what the Bible says in Leviticus 27, verse 30. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. In the agricultural context of the Bible, if they had ten bushels of grain, well then one was set aside for God. Ten apples, one for God. Because tithe is not mine. Everything I have is God's, but the tithe, according to scripture, is holy to the Lord, just like the Sabbath, by the way. And so when I return my tithe to God, I acknowledge God as my creator. I liberate myself from the bondage system of materialism in this world, and I choose to set my heart on the things of eternity. Let's make sure we understand this. Tithe is not a tax for Christians or a tip for God. The giving of tithe is a spiritual act of worship to God, where we acknowledge that He's the creator of all things, and I am His child. Malachi 3 verse 8 says something amazing. The Bible says, will a man rob God? In Malachi 3 verse 8, it's one thing to rob a man, but it's another thing to rob God. 
By definition, robbery only ever occurs when the owner is present, by the way, and when the one coming to do the robbing has the intent and the ability to do harm to that person that they are robbing from. So this is a very strong verse. Notice as we continue reading it. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And God says, in tithes and offerings. Here, the Bible makes an important distinction between tithes and offerings. Tithe is 10% that we set aside for God. And as the Holy Spirit moves in my heart and in my life, the Bible says that I will desire to give a free will offering to God also. Returning a tithe to God recognizes that God is God. And returning an offering to God recognizes that God is good. God doesn't say the amount that we should return to him as a free will offering because we all have different capacities and God is fair. Tithe is fair. If a child gets $1, well, they return 10 cents as tithe. If a businessman is earning $100,000, he returns just $10,000 as tithe. You say, I have nothing. Well, then 10% of nothing is nothing. God is fair, and I love that. If you desire to be faithful to God, you might not have much now, but God is going to see to it that you get something because he knows you have a selfless heart and you desire to give to his cause. Malachi 3.10 says this, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. In other words, bring the tithe to the central storehouse of my church so that I can feed my people with the gospel. And notice how the verse continues. God says, try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. God says, try me, prove me. This is a test of faith. How do we prove God? We say, Lord, I don't see how this is going to work out, but I'm going to be faithful in my tithe and put you first. Some people say, I can't afford to tithe. Well, you can't afford not to tithe. You can't afford not to receive the blessing of God because divine math says nine-tenths with God's blessing is greater than ten-tenths without it. When we don't tithe, we are robbing not just God, but we are robbing ourselves of the blessing of God. When we don't, by the way, we don't give to God, we return to him because he already owns it all. And so, friends, when you obey God, as I read the Bible, I see that every time we choose to obey God, he is able to work miracles. He blesses us in ways we cannot imagine. Just think of the time when Jesus fed 5,000. That was 5,000 men. If you include the women and the children that would have been present, we're probably looking at a crowd of 25,000 plus people. And the disciples told Jesus that he should let the crowd go because they were worried that as they got hungry, they might turn on him. But there was a little boy in that crowd. He had five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus told the disciples to tell the people to sit down. He prayed over that little boy's lunch, and by the time he was finished with that little boy's lunch, 25,000 people were fed, and there were even 12 basketfuls left over. I love this because God can make something out of nothing. 
God can add by subtraction. He multiplies by division. He can start off with a little and end up with more than he started with. This is the God who says to you and to me, trust me, prove me in this. Does God's plan work? Let me share with you the story of James Cash Penny. He was born in September of 1875 on the 16th of September, and he had a dream to build an empire of stores. But he failed in business, and eventually his health started failing also. So after physically collapsing one day, he went to spend some time in a health rehabilitation center called the Battle Creek Sanitarium. They put him on a good diet, hydrotherapy treatments, nurses cared for him, and even prayed for him. One day while he was walking down the hall in this place, he heard Christian music playing, and it so touched his heart that he decided he wanted to give his life to God. As he began to read the Bible, he realized and became strongly convicted that he needed to return a tithe to God. And at this point, he was poor and in debt, but he decided to be faithful with the little that he had. When Penny died in 1971, he was 95 years old and he left behind an empire of retail stores that today is still one of the largest in the United States of America. Friends, when a broken man reached out to God and followed the pattern of living for God, he experienced the blessing of God. And he's not the only one. Here are some other names that might ring a bell for you. William Colgate, Henry Hines, Milton Hershey, James Kraft, Kraft Cheese, Hershey Bars, Heinz Ketchup, that's an American thing, and Colgate Toothpaste. All of these founders, they were tithe payers also. And you might be thinking, wow, this sounds great. If I pay tithe, I'm going to be just like those guys. I'm going to be rich and wealthy. Not so. We are faithful in our tithe because we love God and because he says that we should do it. Sometimes the blessings of God are financial, but not always. Other times the blessing of God is having a heart filled with joy and peace, knowing that you are trusting in God and he is going to take care of you. God will make your shoes last longer. He'll make your roof stronger. Don't say, if God blesses me, I'll tithe. No, tithing is a privilege and God loves a cheerful giver. In Malachi 3 verse 11, the Bible says, And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. I just love the story that I heard about a plague of locusts that was crossing the prairies in America. And as it was eating the produce of farms, it came to the farm of Farmer Will, who was a Christian. He believed in the promises of God. And not only that, but Farmer Will was a faithful tithe payer as well. Well, when it got to his farm, what do you think happened? It ate his farm as well. And his friends came to him afterwards and they said, Farmer Will, you're faithful to God. You even paid tithe and look what happened to your farm. How can you still be smiling now? And Farmer Will said it's simple. Years ago when I bought this farm and I started it, I knelt in the dirt here on this property and I gave this farm to God. This farm belongs to God. And I believe God created the locusts too. So here's how I look at it. If the farm and the locusts are God's and God wants to feed his locusts on my farm, then that's his choice. I didn't lose anything. It's all God's anyway. And as the story goes, the next year he had a bumper crop. Psalm 37 verse 25 says, I have been young 
and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. David said that. What this means is that if you are faithful in returning tithe to God, you mightn't be rich, but you will never be forsaken, and God will always find some way to provide for your needs. That is his promise to you. All of heaven's resources and riches are available to sustain the children of God. So when the world economy systems crash, God promises that he will see us through and that his riches of heaven, they are for us. Philippians 4.19 is a wonderful verse as we consider this subject. The Bible says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. When I give it all to him and say, Lord, you are the creator of this universe, God says, don't worry, I will supply all of your need. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. We give to God first because God deserves a tithe on all. And when we put him first, there is always enough. Putting Christ first in our lives will open our hearts to receive the magnificent blessings of God. God has so much that he wants to bless you with. God doesn't need your money, but he wants to bless us. And if we are selfish, his blessings will only make us more selfish. And so God loves to give to those whose hands are open to give to others also. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, God says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Put priority, not on the things of this world or the things of time, but put priority on the things of heaven and eternity. Jesus endorsed the principle of tithing, by the way. In Matthew 23, 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, these are all little herbs, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. The Pharisees were tithing on the tiny things and Jesus said they were neglecting justice, mercy and faith. He didn't say, don't worry about tithing. He said, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone because giving starves selfishness. Why do we give? Why do we give in the first place? Because God gave. The Bible tells us in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, God's pockets were empty for us. When we give our tithe, it is to be specifically used for the preaching of the gospel around the world. And not, not for building buildings, but for sharing the gospel. Just as God gave Jesus, so as we give of our funds, we are acknowledging God as our creator, yes, but also we are saying that we want to participate with Jesus in the spreading of the gospel. And this this is incredibly satisfying. In the words of Ravi Zacharias, who sadly passed away just recently, he said, A heart that truly worships God gives generously to the causes of God. Friends, there is no greater motivation to give than the cross. God only had one son, and he gave him for us. Jesus died for us. Heaven gave its most priceless gift to save you. Today, 
you can say, Jesus, you've given me talents and abilities. I choose to give them back to you. You've given me health and life. I want to give it back to you. You have given to me material possessions. And as an acknowledgement that they are yours too, I kneel today before your cross and I choose to return my tithe to you. Because Lord Jesus, I want to build my life on something that's eternal. Not something temporary, but something lasting that will never crash and never crumble. God is not after your money. He is after your heart. Will you say with me today, Lord Jesus, I want to find my security in your grace and your love. And I want to dedicate all that I am and own to you. You see, If we do not give it to Jesus now, then in the final crisis at the end, when everything loses its value, we will lose it all anyway. But if it's His today, then you and I can say, I know it's not mine, and I know, Lord Jesus, that you are going to supply my every need. If this teaching has made sense to you tonight from God's Word, I want to invite you to enter into an economic partnership with Jesus and just to say today, I want to give my all to you. You can do that in the privacy of your heart by praying right now. Let's pray. Loving Father in heaven, you are the creator of everything. We thank you, Lord, that you have made us and you love us. You gave us your son. Today we choose to acknowledge this by choosing to be faithful to you. We give our lives and everything that we have to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The End. For more information about this program or any of this show's free offers, visit www.theend.digital.